EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 22nd, and my colleague Toria Rainey talks to Igor Lucas, a professor of international relations and history at Boston University and honorary Council General of Czech Republic in New England. Oh, that's a very tall order. Um, (laughs) So many questions, I've already forgotten all of them. I was um, born in in Prague. Um, I am a historian by training. I work on um, a project that has to do with the early stages of the Cold War. And um, I'm a professor at Boston University. All right, so we're just going to jump right in and talk a little bit about the European Union today. So how do you see the European Union today? What do you see as the main policy areas that are problematic? Are there things that you think are working well? Um, And what is wrong with the current political systems? Well, I need to start with an admission that uh, this is not my field of research. I am a historian, as I said, and um, I spend most of my time working with archival documents. And to tell you the truth, I don't think very highly of this kind of talk about, you know, European Union. It's all a matter of opinion, right? There are so many, the, the scale of legitimate opinions is so wide that um, I just can't really distinguish between those who speak as informed scholars those who speak as um, fans or uh, critics of the European Union and who are indeed even sworn enemies because uh, such creatures also exist. So my, my opinions are really opinions. Um, like if we were to talk about um, um, the interwar period in Europe, I would have some firm opinions and I would argue vigorously from my point of view rather than somebody else's on the basis of some of some evidence. Um, if we were to talk about uh, World War II or post-war, Cold War eras, again, I would have some specific uh, documents to refer to. I would have some evidence in mind. Uh, if you ask me such questions, I think you're only asking for my opinion. <laughs> and um, as we know, the, the, you know, everybody can have an opinion. Um, some people like the Red Sox, some people like uh, the Yankees, um, but um, they all sort of um, like baseball. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think the conversation about the European Union needs to be rich and varied because one can approach it from many different points of view. So for some people, um, the European Union is about, is, is about government, it's about management, it's about economic matters, how to rationalize, how to stream, streamline uh, decision-making, how to make Europe more uh, free, how to make Europe more prosperous. 
for me, the European Union, and again, I speak not as a scholar of the European Union, but rather as an observer. For me, the European Union is about civilization. To me, the most important role the European Union has is the role of civilizing the countries uh, into which it enters, or rather, which enter into the European Union. It's actually both ways, right? Um, the European Union expands into a country and the country enters the European Union. So I think, the, to me, the most important role the EU has is, is civilizing its members, you know. And if there is something that's truly admirable, it is the manner in which the European Union and all its predecessors, the, the um, uh, obviously before the European Union we had the European Community, before the European Community we had the European Economic Community, etc. All these institutions, including the present uh, European Union, I think uh, have done an admirable job in dealing with some of the most entrenched problems of European history. For instance, the hatred between German-speaking lands in Europe and France. So all these horrific, tragic wars um, um, of the 20th century, first and second, which ultimately drew many other countries into it and therefore are properly known as world wars, I think those are now much less likely, if not completely unlikely, because of the admirable job that the European Union and its predecessors have done. So right there, I could just stop and say, it's a great institution and I admire it. It achieved what nobody else achieved before it. You know, the League of Nations didn't succeed. The uh, United Nations uh, didn't succeed as well, so uh, the European Union has civilized the Germans, it has civilized the French, it has civilized its, uh, its West European members. And now speaking of civilization, once the European Union advanced into Central Europe and hopefully further Eastern Europe and, and the Balkans, I think as well there it has played a civilizing role in that it, it has made or will have made at some point in the future it much less likely that traditional enemies will remain um, with their daggers drawn and at each other's throat. One can only look at, uh, let's say, uh, so the Slovaks and the Hungarians who I think thanks to the European Union really no longer despise and hate one another. And of course the Balkans is a notorious area for ethnic tensions and I think the, the, the prospect of joining the European Union has made those tensions much less visible. So you mentioned that you are a historian by trade. Um, one thing that we talked about when we were thinking about this project was the notion of democracy and how democracy has the potential to keep open possibilities of choice. Um, so I think that your lens would be incredibly fascinating. So thinking about the history of European democracy, um, if you want to just give a little, it's a very large topic, but if you want to just give an overview of where you think maybe European democracy has grown and where it's come from to where it is today. 
Uh, what do you mean by European democracy? I think. So, uh, I th by that, just to clarify, um, it seems as though in the European Union there are sometimes dangers to democracy um, at either a national or a personal citizen level. So I think that kind of furthering that, to what extent do European citizens have true democracy? Well, again, I'm not entirely sure I understand the question 100%, but from what I do understand, I think you seem to be saying that there are many who complain about the so-called democracy deficit mm -hmm. in Brussels, right? Well, obviously, whenever you join an organization, if it's a figure skating club or if it's uh, the European Union, you must, by definition, uh, accept certain rules, right? Um, you will skate on certain kinds of skates. Um, you will um, play by certain rules. And um, it means less freedom for you. But, obviously, uh, the Europeans, uh, prior to all these European, European um, the, the, the different forms of, of the present-day European Union, they had lots of sovereignty, they had lots of so-called freedom, and uh, it, it produced uh, two world wars and the Holocaust and all the other tragedies of the 20th century. So if it means that um, one takes away uh, uh, from some sovereign um, so-called freedom, if it means that uh, one makes uh, another war between Germany and France less likely, um, well, I'm all for it, to tell you the truth. And I think those who complain about the lack or, or the so-called democracy deficit in the European Union are often, in my book, neo-fascists who use this label, who use this complaint about democracy deficit because they want more freedom for their vile uh, ideas, typically racist uh, or some other, you know, fascist, neo-fascist ideas. It is, it is no coincidence that the, that the sworn enemies of the European Union are uh, pe people like Marine Le Pen of the uh, National Front in France, um, Pagida in Germany, um, at least two political parties in Britain, the, what is it called, UK Independence Party, and the other, uh, I think, British National Party. Um, there are all kinds of uh, similar parties in uh, Central Eastern Europe, uh, especially Jobbik in Hungary. Uh, in the Czech Republic, there are um, anti-European Union voices, and all of these people mask themselves, of course in Greece too, the Golden Dawn, uh, they all mask themselves as great fighters for freedom and sovereignty and democracy. In reality, they want freedom for their vileness. And uh, if we limit um, their freedom, or if we set their so-called right to be vile aside in favor of uh, doing something positive for Europe, I'm all for it. Um, that's a very interesting perspective. Can you talk a little bit more, I guess, I, just, I think I'm just fascinated by the notion of benefiting Europe in a way that doesn't mean that clear democracy in the way that you mean freedom to be vile. Um, now, when you say that these people are, these neo-fascists are looking for almost an excuse to 
air out their views. Um, what do you think, do you think that those are people in power or do you think that those are just citizens? Well, um, well, obviously it's both. Um, some of them are in power, some of them are very powerful. Um, um, uh, Marine Le Pen, um, I'm no expert on France, but some people say she could, uh, she is going to run for presidency and it's been predicted that she could uh, conceivably win the first round. Um, she will not be elected, but she might uh, do well uh, initially. Um, the uh, so-called Eurosceptics, uh, in my opinion, neo-fascists in Britain, um, are also well-known and very influential and, in fact, have uh, uh, brought about the present situation where Britain seems to be uh, sitting on the fence, uh, ready to uh, leave Europe uh, with, I think, disastrous consequences for itself, all under the rubric of defending sovereignty and defending freedom. But in reality, the people who advance these views are neo-fascists. So am I eager to give more freedom to neo-fascists? Of course not. Now, is there a legitimate reason for being skeptical about the European Union? Of course there is. If the European Union, I don't know if that's true, but I hear from people who despise the European Union, I, when I challenge them and say, why do you do, why do you despise it? They tell me that the European Union has um, prescribed how long the dog leash can be. It can be no longer than certain <laughs> certain uh, length. Well, if, if it's in fact true that there are bureaucrats in Brussels who spend time designing these so-called rules and regulations, then, of course, it's uh, laughable and somebody should put an end to it. Um, if it's in fact true that the European Union spends time prescribing the shape of beer bottles that are allowed within the European Union, or the shape of bananas, the size of bananas, all of this, if that's true, uh, then, of course, it's laughable and should, should be, should be uh, um, um, stopped, simply stopped. Is it true that the bureaucracy has grown uh, perversely? Yes, it has. Uh, is it true that many members of the European Parliament are corrupt through and through, that they show up in the morning, uh, pick up their check and then fly home immediately because they have a business somewhere on the side? Of course it's true and it's despicable and it should be more policed and I hope uh, as, as, as time progresses, this will happen. But as I said at the very beginning, I see the European Union as a rampart of democracy and freedom and um, a, civil, a, a force of civilization. And I would readily surrender uh, um, um, all these obsolete concepts such as national sovereignty in favor of the European Union. Of course, if some insane bureaucrat takes over the decision-making in Brussels, then I shouldn't ever surrender my sovereignty. On the other hand, do I think the people are in Brussels are dishonest? Absolutely not. I think that they're well-meaning people. Some of them are probably lazy, some of them are not brilliant, some of them are corrupt. 
But I think they're ultimately well-meaning people, and I think they have done remarkably well. Just compare it with all the other previous centuries, excluding, of course, the luckiest century of all, the 19th century, when we had something pretty similar, the European, like the European Union. You know, when, when Metternich, uh, the great organizer of the Congress of Vienna, um, um, conducted his negotiations after the defeat of Napoleon in Vienna, 1814-1815, he said that the Congress was Europe without distances, right? Because one only needed to cross the street and could talk to the British, who then could cross the square and see the French delegation, who could then speak with the Spanish or the Portuguese or the Holy See and uh, all the other delegations that were in Vienna in 1814-1815. And for me, Brussels is essentially a replica of the Congress of Vienna. Only it's not just a short-lived conference, it is a permanent institution. And as I said, I'm a great supporter. So thinking again about parallels between the way that Europe runs now and things in the past, I know that a lot of people are saying that the immigrant crisis is something that is entirely unprecedented. Um, people are talking about the economic crises that are plaguing Europe and saying that those are also unprecedented. As a historian, have you seen any parallels between what's going on now and anything that's happened in the past? Well, um, I mean, there obviously are many parallels. Um, um, uh, you know, nothing, nothing uh, that happens now is new under the sun, um, uh, as the Romans knew and had a great saying uh, to that effect. Um, I think that um, what is happening is just, um, uh, well, at the moment, uh, what is happening within the world of Islam is something that um, happened in the world of Christianity with in incredibly tragic consequences uh, from the 15th century onward, from about 1414, 1415, there was a uh, split uh, or, or, or a schism developing in the, in the world of Christianity that ultimately led to the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War uh, in uh, 1618, which uh, by the time it was over in 1648 with the treaties of Westphalia, left uh, Central Europe, um, the Holy Roman Empire, essentially a barren, devastated land. Um, if you just looked at the statistics that are readily available, you would appreciate what a, what a large percentage of even you know cities uh, just ceased to exist having been destroyed by the violence that one faction of Christianity visited upon the other faction of Christianity. Well, not surprisingly, there are factions within the world of Islam. 1.5 billion people are unlikely to share one and the same interpretation of, of the holy book. And so they have factions, and like the Christians had done before them, these factions in the world of Islam, they fight with one another. Uh, it is very tragic. Um, I don't know what to do about it. I don't think um, one can. Um, one can only resort to diplomacy and voices of reason. But uh, as we know, um, we're not only rational creatures. We are also 
uh, creatures uh, seeking self-interest at the expense of others, uh, often with tragic results. So the present uh, crisis, I think, is um, to me reminiscent of these events such as the 17th century, 30 years war, except that it doesn't, certainly not, not now, it doesn't have the violent dimension. And, and that's another thing that one could credit to, uh, to the European Union, that it's been handled so far just, just well. And I must say, I am a great admirer of the Chancellorin. I think uh, Mrs. Merkel um, proved to be the biggest man in Europe, uh, to use an obsolete male chauvinistic term. She, I think, is the, um, uh, the one politician who's shown some real guts and courage uh, in, in uh, saying quite openly that if somebody um, cannot live in their native uh, country, uh, they should be welcomed, uh, received with open arms uh, in Europe, no matter what religion they have. Of course, provided that they don't then attempt to impose their customs upon others. So, for instance, if your life is at stake in, um, um, uh, let's say, Afghanistan, you should be able to seek political asylum in anywhere in Europe. But that doesn't mean that you can then turn around in Europe and say girls mustn't go to schools or uh, girls must cover um, you know, their, their faces because it's, uh, if they don't, then that's offensive to me. Well, you've chosen to come here, you must accept it. Um, so with, with this kind of caveat, I would say that I'm a great admirer of the way, especially Mrs. Merkel reacted to the, to the crisis, and I hope very much that um, um, she will uh, find like-minded partners, um, however relu reluctant they might be, in, in welcoming these uh, truly needy, needy human beings. Uh, it also has shown the, civilized, the, the, the civilization deficit in Eastern Europe, because whereas the Germans and others reacted, even the Austrians initially, reacted in a positive way. Um, of course, I know that it's not that there are other sides of, of both the German society and Austrian and elsewhere, but initially the most positive reaction was in Western Europe whereas the most negative reactions one could see in Eastern Europe. And that, to me, shows how desperately needed is the civilizing role of the European Union to, to persuade these people who, a few decades ago, themselves lived under horrific totalitarian systems, and now they have forgotten it, and now they want to deny the right to uh, live without fear of war and so on to others. So we have one more question for you, and that is kind of thinking back to the future. This is entirely your own opinion, um, but what is your vision for Europe going forward? Um, if you could see Europe change in any way, what would you hope to see? Well, I, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm, 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 I, I sort of try to be an optimist, and I think that if I were to look only at the European Union, then I would... I would probably find grounds for optimism. I think, as I said already, it's, it's a fine institution 
that is um, obviously designed by humans and it's therefore flawed. Its uh, leaders are not gods but uh, flawed human beings so they too make mistakes and so on. But I think it's uh, just fine and on the right track. What worries me greatly is the way the European Union is being manipulated by Putin and several other uh, perhaps people that, that I know much less about. But I do know that Putin has uh, a long time ago discovered that he will never be able to compete with the European Union. He will never be able to offer the degree of prosperity, the degree of freedom that is taken for granted within the European Union to his own people. And therefore, he always feels vulnerable because the people within his jurisdiction can see, and in the globalized world, see instantly that life is, in fact, better on the other side. And that makes him weak. And because he cannot make Russia stronger, he can level the field by making European Union weaker. In other words, bring it down to his level. And this is why he actively finances the hard-right neo-fascist parties in Britain, in France, in Denmark, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Poland, in, in the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, in Hungary, in Greece, all these parties. And in Italy, I should not forget, um, the Lega Nord has you know, financial, um, um, they, it financially profits from its um, relationships with, with the Kremlin. All these parties are financed or assisted in some way by the Russians because they hate the European Union. And, it, well, it's like in American politics, if you take money from sponsors, the sponsors, of course, expect that if you succeed, you will make decisions that will favor their business interests. And Putin is doing exactly the same thing. Only he plays at a much larger scale. His canvas is Eurasia. And he knows that his Eurasian union will never be as, um, um, as, as uh, desirable as the European Union, as evidenced in um, Ukraine, or even in Belarus these days, where you can uh, see, even in Belarus, uh, you can see uh, that um, uh, there is much less willingness uh, to continue this kind of knee-jerk support of Russia. And Putin understands it, and I think he has been deliberately, step by step, uh, weakening the European Union. And I'm not entirely sure that the European Union understands how dangerous it is. Um, and I think uh, it would be a great mistake to underestimate the Russian threat. All right, that concludes our interview, but thank you so much. Thank you.
You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 